Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies, some rain, depending on what part of the state you're in. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Agents with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation searched the home of Gregory and Travis McMichael Tuesday evening. The father and son faced charges of aggravated assault and murder in the February 23rd shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. Now, this is all part of the GBI's investigation. While no specific information was given as to what or if anything was obtained, the Bureau would only add the case is still active and ongoing. Now, coming up in just a moment, we'll hear from an attorney representing the family of Ahmaud Arbery who say a third man should be arrested for his involvement in the shooting death. He tried to say that he was not part of this organized effort. However, we see a video where he's involved in this four-minute chase or pursuit to confront Ahmaud Arbery. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as of noon today, there are 38,889 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,684. And there are 7,089 hospitalized. Now, this is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health as of noon today. Meanwhile, free COVID-19 testing is available today in Atlanta's West End area. The Family Health Center near the West End Mall will be testing until 3 p.m. So you've got about two hours. Walk-up and drive-through testing options are available. Now, officials with the health center would like residents to call ahead in order to be screened before arriving to the site. Again, free COVID-19 testing is available today in Atlanta's West End. It's the Family Health Center near the West End Mall. And again, officials would like residents to call ahead in order to be screened before arriving to the site. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This week, members of the Atlanta NAACP and other organizations called for an investigation into the Glenn and Waycross Georgia Judicial Circuits regarding the initial investigation into the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. Richard Rose is president of the Atlanta NAACP and spoke at a press conference. Clearly, there's an indication of law enforcement misconduct from these two DAs, but they are not alone. We hope that America, Georgia, should recognize its inherent racism from the governor's mansion, from Chatsworth to St. Mary's, from Carrollton to Augusta, all over this state. And let's take a real look and try to find justice and correct the wrongs that have been meted out against black men and women for hundreds of years. That's what we hope to happen. Uh, Are we hopeful? No, but we will keep agitating and advocating for that. 
Also, attorneys for Arbery's family say a video montage produced by the New York Times reveals more about the case. The video, which was created using security footage, cell phone video, and 911 calls, shows Arbery was chased for more than four minutes before he was shot and killed. This all coming from the family and the attorney. Joining me now is National Civil Rights and Personal Injury Attorney Benjamin Crump, one of the lawyers representing Ahmaud Arbery's family. Attorney Crump, as always, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me and thank you for covering this important matter. Attorney Crump, let's begin with this video that does use security footage and cell phone video and 911 calls and police reports. You see this as evidence, I should say, first. Yes. It clearly demonstrates that this was an organized effort by many people in that community that was condoned by the police and in many ways encouraged when you put it in context with the text message that came out where the homeowner was notified by Officer Rest <laughs> of the Glenn County Sheriff's Department that if the intruder comes back talking about a mod, then don't worry about calling us. Just call Greg McMichaels, who lives in that area. He will handle this. Now, Greg McMichaels isn't a police officer. So why are you telling this homeowner that just call this uh, mob to confront this young African-American if he comes back into the community? And that's exactly what they did. So that video is the conclusion of a series of communications, apparently, between Mm -hmm. the police and these homeowners who became this uh, mob who confronted and was attempting to capture Ahmaud Aubrey, we believe, only because the color of his skin, because you must remember, there were several videos that show several white people going into the home that was under construction, and nobody got a shotgun and a 357 Magnum, got in a pickup truck and chased them for four minutes. Mm-hmm. It was only Ahmad Arbery, and we believe it was because of the color of his skin. Counselor, I want to move also to now the involvement of a third individual, William Roddy Bryan. He admits to releasing the first video uh, footage, saying that he would hope it would shed some light. But now comes this video that shows his involvement through a different lens. What do you make of that? It's very troubling, the fact that he tried to say that he was not part of this organized effort. However... We see a video where he's involved in this four-minute chase or pursuit to confront Ahmaud Aubrey. And on top of that, in the police report, you have McMichaels referring to the fact that Roddy cut him off. Well, if you all are not working with concert, if you all aren't working in concert with one another, why are they saying you cut him off and when we look visually at the video it certainly seems like he's ambushed so you know at some point this has to be seriously investigated Ahmaud Aubrey's family feels that he was part of this mob and that he should be arrested for uh as an accomplice 
and these crimes that were committed by the McMichaels. And we should note that Mr. Bryan has denied involvement in the case, correct? He has. Yes, he has. But that I would say that's why we need to observe the video for ourselves and listen to what the people who were involved in this tragedy have said and are saying. The voice you hear is personal injury and national civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump. He's one of the lawyers representing the family of Ahmaud Arbery. You are listening to Closer Look, and I am Rose Scott. At a news conference, the attorney for Mr. Bryan said his client fears for his safety and has received death threats. He's also asking your legal team to stop suggesting he was involved in the shooting. What's your response to that? It's very simple. Uh, We have every right when a young African-American is killed, and we have evidence that we believe points to the perpetrators that were involved in that killing, that they should be arrested and have to come before a court of law and the evidence against them, and that it should be the rule of law. Nobody has suggested violence in any way Mm -hmm. towards his client. We're only asking for equal justice for Maude Arbery. Also, Lindsay McMichael, who's the sister of Travis and the daughter of Gregory, admits she posted the image of Ahmaud Arbery's body to Snapchat February 23rd. She has told other publications she did it because she's a, quote, true crime fan, but then goes on to say she realizes it was in poor taste, there was nothing nefarious about it, those are her words. It's just disgusting and heartbreaking to the family of Ahmaud Arbery that, uh, you will post a picture like this and then try to justify it. There's no justifying posting this picture like there's no justifying your father and brother chasing and shooting Ahmad Aubrey with a shotgun and threats with a 357 Magnum. Unjustifiable. It's also being reported that this image has been circulating around Brunswick. You know, this family has endured a lot and they do not need to endure other images of their son being murdered. It is just insult on top of injury. And you just pray for this family as they continue to try to uphold the legacy of Ahmaud Arbery and fight for justice. In terms of what you can share, what has Prosecutor Joy at Holmes told Ahmaud Arbery's family in terms of the investigation, what more they need in order to present enough evidence that could convince a grand jury to indict? Well, Joy at Holmes, the Cobb County District Attorney that has been appointed to the case involving the killers of Ahmaud Arbery, she is the fourth district attorney that has been appointed. She has uh, met with the family and assured them that she will zealously seek justice on behalf of their child and that as soon as possible she will get this matter before a grand jury. We have had this discussion before about other cases that you have been involved in. The outcomes, many said, did not meet what would be called justice. And at this point, what does justice look like for for you and for your clients? Well, justice for the family of Ahmaud Arbery that we're going to hold the prosecutors to the level is equal justice. 
uh, we know that it's only the prosecutors who can prosecute the case mm-hmm. and uh, charge somebody and make sure they are put in jail for crimes that they have committed. As the private lawyers retained by the family, the only thing we can do is bring a civil wrongful death lawsuit and be advocates for our clients that they get equal justice. But make no mistake about it, we intend to keep the pressure on uh, whatever district attorney is prosecuting this case. And the people should keep the pressure on the prosecutors to hold them accountable because these are the elected officials that are charged with an awesome power and responsibility, and that is to do justice. The fact that they can all get convictions on black and brown people every day of the week and twice on Friday, when we're accused of crimes, but when it's in reverse and it is a uh, dead black person or brown person laying dead on the street, and a white person is the uh, person who is the defendant, it seems like they can't ever get convictions. So we have to hold the prosecutors accountable for zealously doing justice for our community also. There now are more organizations, more people calling for the Department of Justice to file federal hate crimes against the McMichaels. How optimistic are you that that will happen? I'm cautiously optimistic. I believe this was a heinous, horrific murder that was captured on video. And I believe that the Department of Justice in the state of Georgia to try to give some semblance of equal justice uh, that it still exists in America is going to try to do everything they can because they don't want to look as if there are two justice systems in America, one for black America and one for white America. We are the United States of America, and we have to have a justice system that guarantees the constitutional benefits to each and every one of our citizens. And I will say this, mm-hmm. if these uh, killers are not held accountable for the killing of Ahmad Aubrey in broad daylight that was captured on video and the fact that we now know there were text messages and other evidence to show that this was an organized effort. If there are not convictions, then there is no equal justice for African-Americans in 2020 in America. National Civil Rights and Personal Injury Attorney Benjamin Crump, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR, I'm Rose Scott. 
A national coalition that consists of civil and human rights organizations is calling on the Department of Justice to open a full and what they say thorough hate crimes investigation into the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. The collective is also requesting a probe into the office of the district attorney of the Brunswick Judicial Circuit, the office of the district attorney of the Waycross Judicial Circuit, as well as the Glenn County Police Department for what the collective calls systemic constitutional abuses. The Leadership Council on Civil and Human Rights, along with the NAACP and hundreds of other national and local organizations, submitted their request in writing to the DOJ. Becky Monroe is the director for the Fighting Hate and Bias program at the Leadership Council on Civil and Human Rights, and she joins me now on the program. Ms. Monroe, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This case has brought together a lot of various organizations Let's begin with you reflecting on what that says in terms of, or as you all feel, the the need to make sure that this case will be investigated by the Department of Justice. I think, you know, we have over 115 organizations that have signed on to this letter calling for a full and thorough hate crimes investigation into the horrific killing of Ahmaud Arbery, as well as a civil rights pattern or practice investigation. Uh, for systemic constitutional abuses into the way this case was handled, into the local district attorneys, into the um, police department. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that we were able to get such a broad broad and diverse coalition of organizations to come forward, I think really speaks to the Mm -hmm. recognition that this case is unfortunately but one of the latest examples of the ways in which systemic racism and the continuing dehumanization of of black people across this country is 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 coming to bear and i think that there is a recognition that we cannot address the racism the hate the impunity that that threatens the lives of people of black people and other people of color across this country until the department takes necessary actions to ensure full and real accountability For our listeners who may not be familiar with the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, how long have y'all been around? So we are, we have a diverse membership of more than 220 organizations, and we have been around for, since 1950. Mm -hmm. And where are you based out of? We're based here in Washington, D.C. We, again, as a coalition of other organizations, one of the things that we we try to do is we bring to bear the fact that organizations from across the spectrum that work on different aspects of civil rights issues that represent different communities who are confronting hate and confronting discrimination will come together in solidarity uh, in order to protect the civil and human rights of all people in the United States. In this letter that you all have signed on to where you're asking the Department of Justice to investigate this, what are you laying out specifically as to the reasoning behind this request? I think we look uh, to two different sources of authority for the Department of Justice to investigate this case. Uh, The first one, we are looking to federal hate crimes statutes. And so here we think that the publicly available facts, including again, that harrowing video documenting the intentional killing of an African-American man in broad daylight by two white men who stalked him and then killed him support opening an investigation under a federal hate crime statute. And a hate crime, uh, when you're looking at whether uh, a case should be investigated as a hate crime, you're looking both at an underlying crime, 
which here, of course, uh, we have the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, and they're looking at what motivated it. And here we are, we think there is evidence sufficient to open an investigation that he was killed because of the color of his skin, because of his race. Someone listening may say, well, Miss Monroe, how do you determine what's the evidence that you all think validates that this was a hate crime? So again, we think that there's um, sufficient evidence to open an investigation, and we think that that investigation would bring even more evidence to light. Mm-hmm. Here, the fact that, um, again, you have we've, we've seen uh, videos that show other people who had been, you know, walking around the house that purportedly was the reason that the uh, two white men decided to um, stalk and kill Mr. Arbery, the fact that he was in that home. There were other people who were in that home, and the people who um, were white were not deemed a threat and, and, and stalked and, and, mm-hmm. and killed. And I think, um, you know, in terms of for sufficient evidence to open an investigation, we think there's plenty here. Um, and I think that you cannot ignore in this case, as in any of this work, that we are... We are talking about uh, here, it was an African-American man who went out for a jog and he was targeted by two white men. And you cannot think about this case without understanding the larger context of racism in this country and the way who is deemed who is deemed dangerous and who is deemed um, you know, dangerous enough to follow and in this case to stalk and to, to, to kill. So I think uh, we think that, you know, the, the plain facts of this case that we've seen so far that, you know, that the entire world has had access to certainly support opening an investigation. And then through that investigation, the FBI and the Civil Rights Division can identify additional evidence to support whether or not there should be a hate crimes charge brought. But we think there is more than sufficient evidence to open that investigation. You all believe that the hate crime charge should be levied toward Gregory and Travis McMichael. I'm curious as to the man who recorded the video, William Roddy Bryant, and at the time of this conversation, there is a new video that has emerged which apparently shows Mr. Bryant also in pursuit of Ahmaud Arbery for about four minutes. Do you think Mr. Bryant should also be charged with a hate crime? Again, I do think that the the, the four-minute um, video that you're describing um, is... Um, it, and it's one that I think Mr. Merritt just uh, just uh, discussed and released the attorney for for Mr. Arbery's family. Mm-hmm. I think it's incredibly um, disturbing and telling that that Mr. Arbery was chased for four minutes before he was killed. And so I think um, I do think an investigation should uh, a hate crimes investigation looking at to you know with underlying crime and who was targeted and why they were targeted should include all potential defendants. And so I think that's, um, uh, that, that I definitely, you know, think they should include all potential defendants and look into sort of who, who was responsible here. But I think, um, I think the additional evidence, uh, that this video, um, brings forth, um, also just brings up just how terrifying and tragic this, the last few minutes of, of Mr. Arbery's life, uh, must have been. Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr has requested that the DOJ investigate the handling of the Ahmaud Arbery case, not necessarily calling it a hate crime investigation, but asking the DOJ to investigate the handling of the Ahmaud Arbery case. He's not asking for an investigation to this being a hate crime. Well, I think, you know, we we think that the 
Department of Justice should both investigate this as a hate crime, and um, and we think that um, you know we would invite others who um, to, to support that call and think that it is an important one. Um, and I would also note that because Georgia does not have a hate crime statute, mm -hmm. that this is a particularly important case um, because Georgia doesn't have a statute available to address crimes that target victims on the basis of race and to, to identify why those cases are different and why they, um, why they require um, a different investigation or a, a deep investigation, but that why they, these, these cases are critical in terms of seeking justice, not only for Mr. Arbery and for his family, but for the entire community that is targeted. When someone is targeted for a hate crime, they are not targeting just one person. They are trying to terrorize and target an entire community. And that's why we think a hate crimes charge in this case is particularly important. I think the other, uh, we, we also, in our letter, we call for a hate crimes investigation. Mm -hmm. We also call for an investigation into the conduct of the local district attorneys and the police department. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, in, in some ways we, we point in our letter to the fact that the Georgia Attorney General called for this investigation as a way of supporting the fact that here the Department of Justice should use its authority to investigate whether, again, the prosecutors and the police department engage in what's called a pattern or practice mm -hmm. in here of race discrimination in, in violation of the Constitution and how they carried out their duties. So we actually um, point to the fact that the Georgia Attorney General also called for this investigation to support uh, to support our call for a, the conduct of a uh, pattern or practice investigation by the Civil Rights Division. Attorney General Carr has also appointed a special prosecutor to handle this, Joyette Holmes out of Cobb County here in Georgia. Is that, does that give you some optimism? I think, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's, I think it's a positive development. It's well overdue. I think, you know, one of the other things I really wanted to emphasize is that the reason that we're here today and that we're talking about this case and um, is, is the sort of longstanding and tireless efforts of local advocates in Southeast Georgia, civil rights leaders who have been fighting white supremacy for generations and here who pushed incredibly hard to get a new prosecutor appointed. And that includes Mr. Arbery's mother, who I, um, I just, you know, she's facing the most unfathomable grief and yet she was still pushing and demanding justice for her son. And I think that's really a big reason why we are here today and why they did finally appoint um, you know, an independent prosecutor to investigate this case. So I do think it's, uh, it's an important, um, it's an important development. And I think it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad they've done that. Uh, but I think obviously it's long overdue. I imagine you have a lot of conversations about race and racism. You identify as white, correct? Yes. When you have conversations about race or racism with other white folks, is it different when you have those conversations with people of color? I think that it is impossible for someone who is white to not acknowledge that, of course, those conversations are going to be different because our lived experience is going to be different. You know, one of the things we talk a lot about in this pandemic is we've been talking about the fact that the pandemic and the virus have laid bare ongoing systemic racism and discrimination in this country. But the reality is, I think that's an insult in many ways to people of color who have been living that reality every day. And so while I think it is important and, and good that more people are recognizing it, 
the fact that it took a pandemic to do that is telling. So I do think the conversations are different, but I also think and I believe that we, if we are going to, you know, to really talk about, you know, we talk about how we're in this together. But I think the question, and I, um, I've seen several, uh, several um, African American journalists talk about this, and in particular about the fact that, you know, we can talk about we're in this together, but are we going to emerge together? And I think that's the real test, and that's a test for white people. It's a test for people who haven't uh, lived this reality every day for um, for their lives and for generations. And so I think, yes, I think it's a, you know, it's a conversation that needs to have. To happen. I am glad that people are talking more honestly, I hope, about race and what this disease has revealed about, you know, the generations and of, of discrimination and, and really our, our country's original sin. I I look to, you know, I, I, I think that, again, it's being led by African Americans. It's being led by other people of color who have had to bear this, um, bear this ongoing burden of racism, discrimination, and have lived to live it. And so, again, I, I think it's, I'm glad that people are, are recognizing that, that there is this underlying systemic racism that's being revealed. But I also respect the fact that um, this is not new and that we need to respect the fact that there have been, for example, here in, in Southeast Georgia, there have been leaders who have been fighting white supremacy for generations. And the fact that they're continuing to have to fight it is just a sign of the ongoing uh, injustice that needs to be to be that we all need to be focused on together and i think we also need to recognize who's really leading this fight and it has always been people of color and i think um you know for white people i think we need to respect that recognize that and and follow follow the lead of people who have lived this who are living this and who are fighting this systemic racism and, and injustice every day that being said the difference between being an ally and an activist? You think some people need to understand that there is a difference? I think that's right. You know, I um, I think a lot about when people um, talk about sort of what it means to be an ally, um, I think that it, it's not enough. And I think, um, you know, I also think a lot about the uh, the work of Ibram Kendi, when he talks about what it means to be anti-racist as opposed to, you know, you're not racist, that's not, it's not an option. He talks about the fact that we have to be, all of us, anti-racist. And I think that that also gets to this sort of question about what it means to be an ally versus an activist. You cannot, um, we cannot rest. Uh, we cannot say, for example, when we talk about this virus, people keep talking about getting back to normal. We're not talking about getting back to normal. We need to talk about reimagining what this country can look like so it's coming closer to its ideals. And I think as as Dr. Kendi and others have sort of called for us to, to recognize, uh, we need to focus on how to be an anti-racist um, and, 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 and think about how we come together after this um, to build a more just country, not one that, that is going back to the status quo. Becky Monroe, the director for the Fighting Hate and Bias program at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Becky, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the conversation. Thank thank you for the conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. An online search using the words COVID-19 economic impact will generate nearly 2 billion results. I know because I did it last night. But it's up to you to cipher through the articles, scholarly papers, podcasts, and videos. But here's what we do know. The U.S. and pretty much every other economy has been gutted. Around the world, economies are crumbling. Since the coronavirus outbreak, the price of every vital commodity has fallen. We're seeing a lot of these markets hit. The coronavirus has oil below $50 a barrel. U.S. demand in China has dropped off substantially. You're impacting the demand for copper, iron ore, even gold is going down. Wow. That video montage from The Economist, COVID-19. How bad will it be for the economy? And all those typical indicators of a strong U.S. economy, well, they've all taken a hit. Employment, industrial production, retail sales, and consumer spending, they've all declined. And while nearly every state is trying to reopen in its own way, there's still a need for help for many people in many different areas. Last year, the financial institutions of the Atlanta-based SunTrust and BB&T, you might recall, merged, and now they're Truist Bank. And amid this pandemic, Truist is committing financial gifts specifically earmarked for COVID-19 relief efforts. And joining me now with more information is Lynette Bell, president of the Truist Foundation. Lynette Bell, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose, so much for having me join you today. I'm excited to have our discussion. Let's begin with a little bit about you. Uh, you are new to are you new to the Truist company? I've been with the company over 25 years. I started out with SunBank, and actually, I'm, a, I'm an anomaly because I've been with the same firm my entire career. But I started with SunBank in Florida once I left college, and then I transferred to Atlanta to where a corporate seat is today, uh, was formerly, and have been at SunTrust my entire career. So, and I've worked in, I've done pretty much everything in the bank from internal controls, mergers and acquisitions, to operations. I've done everything but make a loan. <laughs> so I've had a really great career and um, have reviewed loans, but never made a loan. Uh, my most recent role was leading the bank's Community Reinvestment Act mm-hmm. program um, and making sure that the merger was successful on our side as it relates to how we engage with our community partners and community-based organizations and how we adhere to governance required by regulators. Let's talk about how the financial institution, what is the approach to your community engagement? Often when we hear about a foundation, people think, okay, they just give, you know, money to the efforts they believe are important. But it's much more than that. Yeah, it's it's definitely more than that. You know, I will say once uh, we brought both institutions together, SunTrust and BB&T, what we realized is that we both had great histories of giving to our communities because we realized that communities are the backbone of who we are. And so came together and created Truist. And so this is our first year rolling out the Truist Foundation. But the company is about being purposeful, leading with purpose and mission. And so our mission at Truist is to inspire and build better lives and communities. Inspired to get out front of a lot of other organizations and get Truist Cares out there to address the pandemic and all the needs that related to it. So our company has been very focused on being purpose-led and purpose-driven. And there are plenty of companies, Fortune 500 companies that are purpose-led, but for a financial institution to do it as part of their DNA every day, it's really unique and hopefully positions us in that particular way. What was the approach in deciding what areas that you all wanted to contribute or be a part of as it relates to the pandemic? Yeah, we, we, we thought a lot about this and we put it together pretty quickly, but I will say 
um, as we looked at our giving history, we, we realized that we were very concerned about youth and about seniors and about workforce and about economic development and economic mobility. And so as we thought about kind of our cornerstones of our strategic direction, when the pandemic started rolling into the United States, we thought about let's use data to help us break, make it an informed decision around investing. And so how do we help meet those critical needs during this time of need, which is unprecedented for this country. We were like, let's look at our pillars of who we are and address basic needs and care, supporting youth, seniors, small businesses, and understanding that connectivity, even for us as an institution was gonna change because now people gotta work remotely, that businesses had to shift their paradigm and their models so that they would be connected. So those were the areas we focused on, youth, seniors, small business, connectivity, and workforce. And so that we could help address those needs of vulnerable populations. So to be clear, Truest Cares is the initiative that addresses the COVID-19, the different COVID-19 relief measures. That's correct? Yes. Yes, that's correct. This is actually your second round of funding. In your first round, you all put financial efforts toward health care and financial hardship. We did. And the first round of funding, we really focused on basic needs. And one of the things that we did was talk about making that informed decision on investments. We, we thought about, okay, who has been working with the pandemic globally? And we actually looked at national partners to help provide some of that data assessment that we need to make the initial investment. So we went directly to the Centers for Disease Control Foundation as the first national partnership. And then we switched to John Hopkins Medical because they were the other partners dealing with the pandemic globally. And we thought those were great partners to bring to the table to help us direct our investments. The third partner that we worked with was United Way Worldwide. We had been talking to them, we're already a partner with them, and they started sending us data going, hey, we've seen these huge spikes across specific cities as it relates to pandemic. Like people were worried about utilities, food security was a big issue that they were getting spikes of 200 to 500% in their 211 call centers. So we thought, great, here's another national partner that we can bring to the table and help us drive some of our decisions. So the first $25 million really was about supplying basic care needs to those five specific groups that I talked about, youth, seniors, workforce, small business, and connectivity. And Once so- we started looking at where pandemic hotspots were, mm-hmm. we started directing our investments there under those five specific focus areas. And so now in this latest round of funding, you all are going to focus on small businesses and Internet connectivity. Yeah, Rose, thank you for that. And so we decided as an institution that the pandemic and again, the CDC and both John Hopkins notified of us, of us that the pandemic would have a longer tail in the U.S. And so we took that information in. And so this feels like the right time here and now to invest an additional twenty five million dollars. And so we're doubling down on our investment a total of $50 million to COVID-19. And we expect under this next funding round is how do we help and rebuild and connect communities? And so we're going to focus on three key areas. The first one will be small businesses. And you've seen all the headlines that more than half of small businesses in our country are at risk of closure due to COVID-19 and are in need of immediate support and help. And so we're gonna provide um, $3 million directly to a national partner known as LIST to support small businesses, providing that grant funding directly to small businesses through that intermediary. In addition to that, we're gonna work on our truest um, cares for connectivity. And again, we know that 
connectivity in this new environment um, that is unprecedented for the United States, but everybody had to shelter in place and everybody had to work remotely, shifting their models of how they do business. Um, we've seen it in the retail establishments like curbside service, but we know that other businesses as well as nonprofits had to shift how they manage their assets and resources to stay connected. And so connectivity is a clear, note, a, a clear component that we wanna continue to support. Because again, this is the first real pandemic in the United States, but this is an emerging crisis and we know that crises are going to continue to happen. So how do we help those businesses shore up so that they are planning for the next future crisis and so are prepared to address and deal with it? So connectivity was the next piece, second piece. And the final and third one under this next wave of money is truest cares for our teammates. And we're going to look at where our employees live and work and provide support to nonprofits to help in that rebuilding and solvency that they need to stay connected and stay viable during and after the pandemic. So Lynette, those nonprofits, will they need to apply or will they be referred? How will you all select which nonprofits will receive the funding? Yeah, I, I will say this, Rose, in the first three phases of Truist Cares, we had more applications than we had funding for. And so um, we are still looking through some of what we had in our cloud for organizations that support. But organizations are still reaching out to us as the pandemic is happening. So they can apply. They've already applied online or they're invited to apply. But we are definitely um, still looking at it. those applications that came in. We got quadruple what we anticipated mm-hmm. um, with our $25 million initial investment. And so this brings a total to $50 million for COVID-19 relief efforts. Uh, Lynette, when you think about how this pandemic has affected so many different communities, so many different areas, when something like this happens that we will see more corporate philanthropic-led efforts, whether it's from banking institutions or other Fortune 500 companies? Rose, I will say that during the first wave of the pandemic coming into the United States, we saw a lot of companies rallying around providing investment dollars to support nonprofits and, and those in critical need. And I expect this uh, wave of philanthropic investments to continue. I think it's a necessity. We realize that we're all very much connected as human beings and as individuals that no one person can do without the other. And so that connectivity or, or linkage is critical to the continued support of not only this economy, but the continued support of families and communities. And, and so, yes, I expect that to continue. I will say for Truist, um, we were as I said, for both institutions, we're already very committed to our communities and providing dollars. SunTrust had a foundation to support mm-hmm. investment. BB&T had a, a charitable fund that they supported communities and, and, and investments in those communities. We will continue to be very viable. I will say the Truist Foundation was a new foundation introduced like 10 weeks ago, and we put it out there so organizations can still apply for nonprofit grants under our four pillars. We still are doing business as usual under that. We did pivot for the pandemic, but we still are getting traditional grant requests in from nonprofit community-based organizations meeting the four pillars of our foundation because that work still continues. Communities still have to be supported. And there were clearly a lot of nonprofits who immediately created an, an emergency responsiveness to COVID, but there were some that did not. And guess what? We're still supporting those nonprofits so that their business model is not negatively impacted and is still supporting their business as usual concept and model that was still needed in our community. 
Well, and because of it, obviously an unexpected pandemic and $50 million is a lot of money. Does this in any way, does it impact what you all would normally do funding other efforts? Yeah, the, yeah, the chairman of the Truist Foundation Board is Bill Rogers, um, former CEO of Suncrest Bank. And mm-hmm. so we made our initial commitment of um, making sure that our foundation was going to support our communities. And so that commitment is still there. And we have not wavered from that. Uh, the funding that we provided for COVID-19 came from multiple sources inside of Truist. Uh, it came from the Truist Foundation, a Truist Charitable Fund. It also came from um, one of our functional areas, which is the community reinvestment area of the bank. They provided money as well. So as we looked at supporting this pandemic and pivoting really quickly, we pulled multiple levers inside of our institution to say that, hey, this is important to us and we're going to be all hands in and everybody supported. So, yes, that, that happened. But the foundation's work continues to go on. We have not wavered from what we committed to do and supporting nonprofits and community-based organizations. And being that SunTrust was so important to the philanthropic community here in Atlanta, I can't get away without asking this question because I'll get a lot of emails. You all are still going to make sure, now that you are Truist Bank, you all are still going to be heavily engaged in Atlanta efforts here? Um, thank you for that question, Rose. Um, that is exactly right. We realize that both institutions, SunTrust and BB&T, were in different corporate seats. And... I will say that Bill Rogers made a commitment that we were not um, leaving Atlanta because we still got our office spaces there. We still have teammates in Atlanta, but our investment and commitment to Atlanta still stands. Um, through even COVID-19 um, in the state of Georgia, we supported and funded lots of nonprofit organizations from United Way mm-hmm. to the Atlanta Food Bank to support the Atlanta market during the pandemic. But we're still very much committed to investing in the Atlanta market from Truist's perspective. We know that's a critical market for Truist Financial Corp, and we are still a partner in the Atlanta market. That's a good way to end this conversation. Lynette Bell, president of the Truist Foundation, and we've been discussing the financial institution's COVID-19 relief efforts, this time with a focus on internet connectivity and small businesses as well. Lynette, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back on the program. Right. Thank you so much, Rose, for the opportunity. Have a great day. All right. You too. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. 
I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.